92nd Street Y Online Media is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. This program features Francis Ford Coppola in conversation with film professor Richard Brown. It was recorded on June 9, 1973, before a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Good evening and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming, particularly for coming all the way from California to be with us. Uh, Francis, since we just saw this bit from The Godfather when we were looking at Brando's performance in particular, could you tell us a little bit about how you cast Marlon Brando and whether you met any resistance? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the first thoughts about the role was that although the book was called The Godfather, uh, that he really wasn't going to be in the film very much. That The Godfather, uh, you all know the story, but he makes, you, you, you're exposed to him, and then he's shot and he's taken away, and all these characters sort of function in his absence. And, and even though he is gone, that character is important in the scenes he's not in. Then he comes back after being in the hospital. And so we all realized that we needed an actor who could in a way act even when he wasn't there, which is a difficult problem. And uh, it was a question of mystique, you know, that, that, uh, that we needed someone like that. My first thought when I, we were casting the film was I wanted, you know, I wanted the people who were Italians to be played by Italians because of all the benefits you get in terms of mannerism and language, the fact that they can speak in, in Italian and preferably in Sicilian. Uh, and so we went through a very lengthy process of meeting people, and we really, I must have met 2,000 actors in the course of both in New York and California, and we, we shot some tests, and it, it seemed, although there were some fine actors, uh, and don't forget these are older men, so so there was very few, you know, uh, no, no one had the mystique that we felt we needed. So we, uh, we sat down and talked about it, and, and it occurred to me uh, um, that kind of if you went to a party of 10,000 people at this gigantic party, and someone said that Marlon Brando was there, that sort of everyone in the party would kind of have a sense of where he was, you know what I mean? They would, you could almost, you know, he's in there, you would know it. And that was the kind of mystique that we wanted to endow the old man with. So uh, we were talking about it, and I talked on telephone to Mario Puzo, and I said, well, you know, I'm thinking, I know he's not Italian, and I said I wanted an Italian, but I'm thinking of uh, Marlon Brando, and he said, well, that's an incredible coincidence. He says, because that was my idea when I was writing the book, and when I mentioned it to all the heads of the company, they, they threw things at me, so don't mention it or you'll get fired. And uh, from there began the very lengthy uh, battle to get Marlon apart. And when you mentioned it to the company, you didn't get fired, so it seems. Darn close. I came very close, literally, to getting fired for suggesting it. Really? Uh, in fact, I said, I said it on the telephone, and the response was literally gagging and yelling on the phone. And, and you know, and, and all things being fair, you have to realize at that point that Marlon Brando had been in some eight or nine films that had lost money. Uh, his new film was Quemada, which had, well, no, I guess it hadn't opened yet, really. The, the battle over Brando went on for so many months that in the course of it, Burn opened and did very badly, which was further used as examples uh, as to why he shouldn't play the part. Um, in fact, one point, Al Ruddy, who was the producer, we, we were going to go present the case one last time to uh, a meeting of executives, and he bet me, he said, I bet you $200 that, that Brando will not be in this picture. 
and I was too poor at that time to, to take a $200 risk. But uh, very briefly, I, I don't want to go into it at length, but very briefly, we went to the meeting of, uh, of various Paramount executives, and I felt like a lawyer, you know, as I ran down the reasons why I thought he should play the part. And finally, they told me, well, there are three. Finally, uh, first I was told that uh, by authority of the president of the company, I was no longer allowed to discuss the matter anymore. So then they realized that that sort of was ridiculous. So they said, okay, I could discuss it. And they gave me, you know, five minutes to talk about it. At which time, I think they were impressed with my position. They said, okay, on three conditions, we will consider Marlon Brando. One, that he does it for no money. <laughs> Two, that he will do a screen test. This is Marlon Brando. And three, that he will put up in a form of a personal bond, either money or property, to ensure that he will not cause the film to go over budget. So I said, all right. <laughs> you know, figuring I was ahead that they even were now entertaining the idea. Uh, so what I did is I called up Brando, and he was, uh, those of you know what I mean, I mean, he was an idol to me. And I uh, was frightened at the thought of meeting him and deal having to deal with him. Called him up and I told him, um, I didn't know how to tell him. <laughs> that we were. So we would start talking about the character and he volunteered. He said, I don't know if I can play the part. He says, but maybe if we put some makeup on. I said, that's good, I, that's good, you know. Mm -hmm. I said, I'll come over and I'll bring, uh, I'll bring a 16 millimeter camera, I said. You know? And he was very nice and the next morning, you know, I felt like a suicide commando mission because I was up in San Francisco. And um, we, uh, myself and two fellows from uh, my company up there got on a six o'clock plane to fly down, you know, and we went to his house and we got there and he wasn't awake yet and we set up our equipment very quietly. And he came out and um, up to that point, I had a good hunch that I thought he could do it very well, but I didn't really know for sure. And he, he came out, he was very pleasant and he sat down and he was looking at himself in the mirror and uh, uh, he started to put shoe polish on his hair and he literally took some Kleenex and put it in his mouth. And I suggested like a very thin mustache like my Uncle Louie. <laughs> and he put that on and, and literally in front of my eyes, he turned in to this old Italian. And I had this little video camera and I was shooting him, you know. And um, later I played it back for him and he said that, oh, he saw how maybe he could do it, you know. And uh, I brought the tape to New York where we turned it on for the head of Gulf and Western, Charlie Bluthorn. And when he recognized Brando with his pigtail, he got up, literally got up and said, oh no, I'm not even gonna look at it. And as he was walking out the door, he turned around just as Brando was turning into this old man. And he said, that's terrific. <laughs> and uh, he got the part. And that was the story. That's terrific. Um, terrific. Really? Yeah. Something which you said there underscored for me the situation of the director where you said you almost got fired. Now, obviously your position in terms of the power you have has changed. Can you, is that a change that you can feel that you're aware of yourself and the way you direct a film and the way executives deal with you? All right, well, obviously the fact that I was chosen to direct The Godfather was somewhat accidental and events played funny games, as I guess they always do in important things that happen to you. The Godfather was not intended to be, a, you know, a, a kind of big, legitimate, expensive, high-class movie. In all, in all honesty, Paramount, Paramount had done some films that had lost money. Uh, 
Love Story had not come out. It's interesting how Love Story affected the production of this movie. And the feeling was that they could take this sort of hot book, which by then was building up uh, attention and people were talking about, oh, you can't put it down and what have you. And they said, we'll get this book, we'll put together a kind of young team of people who can bring it in as, at a price, which was a phrase, to try to make it for like $2 million, $2.5 million, cast someone like John Marley, who had been in Love Story in the role, and uh, you know, make a picture that makes some money and start coming into the company. And uh, they were going to make it in contemporary times. It was going to all be set in 1960, whatever it was, 1970. And I was chosen to direct the picture, I think, mainly because I was a sort of a middle strange director where, where I, was, I was considered to be um, efficient and uh, knowing about you know, kind of youthful production techniques. And I wouldn't get in there and go over umpteen million dollars, which I did. Uh, and on the other hand, unlike certain, there are certain directors in, in Los Angeles who are considered very workmanlike, and they'll definitely bring you a half way decent movie for the price, but usually there won't be anything, you know, special maybe about it. And I fell in a funny category of being a guy who was reliable and would bring it in on budget, and maybe it might be something interesting. Uh, that's why I got the job, and the fact that I was an Italian-American, I think, added in my, uh, you know, they said, well, maybe he'll know how these people really behave and act and what have you. <laughs> So, so I was given, I, I entered the picture in a sort of weak position from the point of view of, of the project began to take on importance. The book became more and more successful. And ironically, the casting of Brando gave the picture sort of class in a way. Mm. He was the first, the first principal cast? He was the big announcement. And although it was controversial at the time, and some people would even come up and say, you know, Marlon Brando, what, what is that craziness, you know? But I think in general, it started to give the picture more stature. So that in a way, by the time, then I successfully fought to shoot it in the 1940, mid-40s period, which also add, added money. By, nan, by then, Love Story had opened and was successful, so the company had the money to take the gamble, which I, you know, it's interesting, if Love Story had not been a success, I don't think I would have been retained on the picture. I really don't. But at any rate, the money came, they agreed to the period which added well over a million dollars to the making of the film, and gradually the, the book continued to be a phenomenon, and the, and the film just grew in stature, so that by the time we actually shot the film, the movie was a bigger movie than I was a director. And I was in a funny position because I'm sure at any number of points they would say, well, what is this guy doing? You know, how is he directing this big movie? <laughs> you know? And uh, for that reason, I was in a very vulnerable position throughout the production. And, uh, throughout the production? Well, deep into the production. Also, uh, also, they were very unhappy with my casting ideas. They really were. Mm -hmm. Al Pacino, uh, who was my choice for Michael right from the beginning, because I had met him for another project, which, which I didn't do. Uh, you know, I felt Michael was an Italian, and it would be neat if he looked like an Italian, if he looked like Sicilian, and that was a constant contradiction to the fact that he was a college boy and everything. Whereas a lot of other people argued that Michael shouldn't look like a Sicilian, that in fact the book says he was blonde, and that, uh, you know, other people, uh, actors, Ryan O'Neill, uh, Bob Redford should play the part, and the blondness and the non-Italianness should show that he was different from the family. And I said, well, it's a story about a guy who wants to be in another kind of way of life, but 
something is pulling him back. And it would be better if you, know, you see that on his face, that he's a Sicilian. Uh, after months and months and months of terrible problems and crazy screen, we were doing screen tests in New York, literally, where there were two chairs like this. And I had asked for the cast that's in the film. And they said, no, we want to see tests. And so I said, OK, you want tests, we'll shoot tests. And we went, there was a week where we were in a studio with, as I say, two chairs like this. And every five minutes, another Michael and Kay came and sat down. We'd roll a camera. They would leave. Another two would come in. And there were hundreds of, uh, hundreds of Kays and Michaels. And they looked at the test. Charlie Bluthorn, the head of Gulf and Western, he, he was invited to look at them. And he looked at these. And he says, you know, he says, there are all these actors here, and they're all terrible. He says, now they all can't be terrible. Says, there are all these actors, and there's this one director. <laughs> the director must be terrible, you know? <laughs> Which is a logical uh, yeah. assumption. You know? And didn't help your position too much. No. And, uh, you know, I, I, whether, I mean, the thing about a screen test is my, my view of a screen test, the way I like to shoot tests, is that I like not to shoot a formal scene. I think that the test is there to show what the actor is like. And, and, and uh, so I don't really direct a screen test very much. I kind of you know, just try to expose the actor to film. And also, my heart wasn't in the test, because I really wanted Pacino to play the part. And Pacino was going through uh, <laughs> I mean, He didn't know where he was. And he, one minute, he was told, it's definitely out. And the next minute, he was saying, well, you're still a chance. And finally, he took another part in the gang who couldn't shoot straight. And just after he takes the part and um, is, is committed to the movie and is going to start rehearsals, I went away to, to England to meet with Marlon Brando, because I didn't know him very well. And I wanted to talk to him about things. And in, in London, in a hotel room, I got, the, I got a call that things looked very bad. I think this was the incident when Mr. Bluedorn had seen the test. And when I arrived at the airport, I got a message from my secretary that was, don't quit, let them fire you. <laughs> And I knew what that meant. If I quit, I lost my salary. <laughs> and if I fired me, I would still get my salary. So we were going to this big meeting. And I said, gee, I don't want to go through all the, the, the misery of getting fired. Why don't we just call in in the phone booth and see maybe I should even go to the meeting. You know? So we stopped this big black limousine. And I got out, and I called on the, on the phone booth. And they said, OK, Al Pacino is playing the part. And I said, well, where, well how did that happen? He's in another movie. Oh, that's all right. We'll get him out of it. You know? And I was told on a phone booth, thinking I was going to get fired, that they had agreed to Pacino. And from there, things went worse. You know? <laughs> but you know, it, it, uh, that, that's how it happened. How, could you tell us some of the other people? You mentioned some of the alternatives that were being considered uh, for Pacino. Could you tell us some of the people who you were just talking about for the Brando role? The Brando role, in truth, there were no alternatives, uh, which is why when they saw the test of Brando, they, they were, you know, part of them were happy, even though they were going, you know, uh, they did go back on themselves, which I admire. Uh, John Marley was one thought. Uh, and at one point, they were even talking Carlo Ponti. And my feeling was, though, that, you know, as an Italian-American, I know that Italian-Americans are not like Italian-Italians. They're different. And any more than a New York Jew is like an Israeli, uh, Israeli born in, in, uh, in the old country. So that to get a, a real Italian and say he's a New York, uh, New York Italian is, uh, doesn't ring true to my sensibilities. So this, I never considered it. No, they, consider, they took this into account in hiring you. In fact, did your 
Did your ethnic background help you in making this film? Oh, yeah, you know, uh, in the sense that as a kid living in New York and Long Island, the first things I saw were the rituals, the first Holy Communion, uh, somebody's getting married, a wedding, all of these things were very vivid in my mind. And, you know, I remembered them. And although my family, you know, were not in the mafia, uh, still Italian-Americans are Italian-Americans in the way they live at home. And I tried to draw on my memory, on my, on my relatives, uh, a lot of them are in the wedding scene, uh, as a matter of fact. You know, and you know, like Italian wedding is a special thing. Uh, you'd have to be Italian to know that food is not really served at an Italian wedding. All these images of people with plates of lasagna, I never saw it. They were always little sandwiches wrapped up in crinkly paper, and they would say prosciutto, gabagol, provolone, and people would throw them. <laughs> And that, and that is why, and this is serious, and uh, other Italian-Americans will bear me out, that's why an Italian wedding, old-style wedding, is known as a football wedding. <laughs> because they throw the sandwiches. Now, this, is this really part of the ritual, or is it to show good nature? Or is it just because, I mean, is it sort of like uh, uh, stepping on the glass, that it's almost part no, of No, I don't think it's as formal as stepping. I mean, the stepping on the glass is a real, you know, yeah. it's a symbol. Uh, no, this is just what they're like. And I think the <laughs> fact that, that Italian weddings, everyone brings their children. And so another phrase that I remember is the kids all come in these clothes and stuff, and, they, and the kids always would get on the dance floor, and they would, we would do what we call slide around the sandwich man. It's where you slide with your shoes, which had shiny soles, because they were new, and you'd slide on the wood of the dance floor. And you always saw kids at these weddings like that. And I think those kind of details, which are the same as in your background, you remember them, and, and they coincided with this movie, so I tried to you know, put them in. Yeah. Now. Were there other people who you purposely cast, other Italians who you purposely cast in principal roles? Or I you... went on the basic rule that all the people we cast in roles as Italian, New York Italians, would be New York, would be Italians. Now, people misunderstood that, and actors misunderstood that. It, it, was a, it was a guiding rule. It wasn't the absolute rule. But it was the way we looked. And my reason for that was that if suddenly in a scene, as really happened, we did a scene in The Godfather, which was in the bar when Luca Brasi is going to make a deal with these bad guys. Mm -hmm. And they did it. And in English, it was terrible. And I, we, 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 uh, we looked and we did this scene about, I want to come over to your family and how much will you pay me? And I looked at it, and we broke for lunch, and it was terrible. I said, I'm making this awful gangster movie, you know? And then, out of desperation, when I came back, I said, play the whole scene in Sicilian. You know, and they were Sicilian, so they could. And the scene, 80% better in a Sicilian, because you can't understand. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I, I wanted Italian-Americans, so we could draw on that, you know? And that you, look, the way I like to work with actors, I don't, I don't direct in the sense that some directors I know where I, I, I lay on an actor always a very specific thing that I want him to do. What I like to do with actors is to get them kind of in a situation that I think will, will produce creativity on their own part. So that if you've got a, a Sicilian actress and she sees the baby and she says, figure bed, she does that automatically. You know, the, uh, gestures. you can't, the gestures the, or, the, or the, uh, the, uh, the language, you couldn't have that otherwise. Yeah. So I tried that on a rule. But in those cases where we really feel, felt it was better casting, as with Brando, then it was a decision to which do you sacrifice. And in several, Jimmy Kahn, of course, is not Italian, uh, Brando. And so in several roles, we did not cast Italians. Mm. In, in the scene that you mentioned, I was struck by the fact that 
um, it's, it's a violent scene. I mean, uh, it's, it's an awful scene ending in an ugly death. And yet, strangely enough, I think that it doesn't have the sense of horror attached to it, as does the scene with the, the horse's head in the bed, which f was, I, f for me, and I think, I think perhaps for many people, one of the most memorably horrible scenes, um, that kind of thing that, that haunts you. Yeah, that I don't think is right. any fault or credit of the film. I don't even think that the horse's head scene in the movie is a particularly well done scene. I think it was the idea, I mean, even in the book that was uh, a thing, and it has to do with some strange thing in people where they're more, almost more horrified over the death of that horse than they are than the dozen odd people that killed in the, in the movie. I've never understood that. Uh, in fact, you know, when we were going to shoot the horse's head scene, uh, I, I made the decision, and it's been rumored, and it's absolutely true, that it was a real horse's head. And uh, everyone was shocked at that decision, you know? And I said, well, I said, the reason I want to do it is I think that will make the scene be what it was supposed to be in the book. So they said, absolutely no, we will not allow that. And I said, well, I'm not saying to go kill a horse, but there must be a way through legitimate means to, to get a, a horse's head. And they said no. And so they spent like $3,000 to get some stuffed horse's head. And a great to-do was made about it. And I said to a young assistant who was working for me, I said, look, go call up a dog food. Call up a dog food company, I said, because they killed, I mean, that's what dog food is. And see if, you know, if we, when they kill a horse, slaughter a horse, if we can get the head. So he did it on the sly. Well, sure enough, the day we're gonna shoot this picture, big crate arrives, you know, with uh, 12 things. And I opened it, and I said, look, it's a stuffed horse's head. And it looked just like something, like some zebra you would see on somebody's wall. It looked terrible, it didn't look real at all. And they said, well, what do you mean, we'll moisten the eyes or something? And I said, it looks phony. And then they brought in the real horse's head. I mean, the two together was incredible. Well, at that point, the crew was about to revolt. They said, we will not stay here and shoot with a real horse's head. And I said to them, I said, well, which, I, you know, I said, I appreciate concern for animals. I, I, I uh, certainly have no desire to be responsible for the death of an animal. How many of you have dogs? And now I have a dog. Well, you're the ones who kill that horse because that horse is from a dog food company. All to feed your little puppies that you keep in tiny little apartments in New York. And... Well, that was applause from the anti-dog faction. And, the, and I, I don't mean to polarize. On behalf of dog owners, I would say that I, um, I'm a dog owner, and I, I'm horrified by that. I feed my dog Gainsburgers, which are completely artificial. But without meaning to get sidetracked, I think the power of that scene is um, is at least in part because as, as ugly as some of the other violence is, we've become, sad to say, accustomed to it. That yeah. it's the kind of violence that um, even strangulation, certainly death by bullets, that's, that's, that's part of our society. There is an element of the grotesque and the unexpected in that scene when he pulls back the covers what, what? That, that hits some, some note in a person. And at least to me, what it reminded me is, is just the same thing you pointed out. That horrified me. The fact that they slaughter horses for dog food, which is terrible, they slaughter horses to make glue. It just reminded me of all of this horror, which certainly you're not responsible for, if anything, which the film points out. Well, the, the, that's an interesting uh, thought of how do you stage a scene in a well-read bestseller book that everyone knows is gonna be there and what's gonna happen? The horse's head scene, if, if people hadn't read it, their friends had told them about it. So as a director, uh, in fact, I was questioned 
by several of the executives how I would shoot that scene. And I said, well, I don't think I can shoot it the way it's described in the book, because everyone knows exactly what's going to happen. What I would like to do, instead of having the horse's head sort of propped up where he wakes up and looks at it, I'd like to put the horse's head under the sheets at the foot of the bed. So he kind of wakes up, and he sees some blood on the sheet, and he doesn't know if he's been attacked. Mm. And the audience, for a second, even they know they know it's going to be a horse's head, for a second they think, well, maybe this crazy guy's changed it. You know? And they look, and, and more, and maybe he's going to find a wound. And to just try to get back for the audience a little sense of not knowing what was going to happen, even though I had, obviously, the obligation to have the horse's yeah. head be there. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to have the horse's head scene, and I didn't want to have the whole Hollywood scene with Waltz, because I felt that the book was so long that I was in a very difficult position of not being able to do anything well, that we were talking about a much shorter movie at first. They, they thought it was going to be you know, a two-hour movie. And I said, well, if I've got to tell the story of the Hollywood studio and Waltz and the horse's head and then this and then that, and then jump forward in time and the love story into Sicily, uh, every scene is going to, you know, I, I won't be able to do the scenes well because that they have to be quick and out. And uh, obviously, I, couldn't, I, I wanted to, to not do that Hollywood story. And obviously, you, to do The Godfather without the horse's head scene is like, you know, putting the, taking away the space in Terry Thomas's teeth or something. <laughs> nice analogy. Is there, it seems to me that inherent in doing any bestseller is that there is going to be pressure that there are certain scenes that must go in, because that's one of the reasons people go to see the movie, to see how you're going to do it. Right. Um, was there pressure from Paramount when you first suggested this, when you said, I, I, can, I can cut this and we can make this movie more manageable. Oh, I knew seriously myself that I couldn't really cut the horse's head scene. I mean, I mean I, I'm not a jerk. I know that you can't yeah. do that. I mean, well, I, I just knew. I had to just try to tell the Hollywood section in, in, in an abbreviated form so that I could get to that big scene and then quickly get back to the... Uh, were, th were there any scenes that you wanted to cut that, um, that the studio would not allow you to cut from the book? No. Uh, I, the main thing I wanted to cut from the book was the whole subplot of the crazy doctor in Las Vegas. And those of you who read the book know what I'm referring to. It was a big subplot with a girl with a certain biological problem. It was really, it was just silly and cheap. And uh, no one disagreed with that. How, how was it working with um, Puzo? What kind of relationship did you have with him? Well, Puzo is a, you know, an extraordinary man. Very, uh, I like him quite a bit. Uh, he had come, he, see, he never wrote this book as art in any way, shape, or form. And he'll be, he's quite frank about it. He had written several personal books which were, by his thinking, you know, really his work is the best he could do it. And he, they were not successful, and the guy was not making any money. And he said, I'm going to sit down and write a book that's going to make a million dollars. And he did. And that was his only concern. And uh, he had no aspirations to make it significant in any way. He just tried to write the most compelling, entertaining book he could. So that, that you know, his intention, the reason he put in some of those other sequences were to make it a bestseller. And he knew what the ingredients of a bestseller. When I, I uh, there's a funny story, an incredible coincidence about the, this movie. I don't think I've ever even told anybody. But I swear to God it's true. Uh, I will tell it to you. <laughs> I was in San Francisco. And it was a Sunday. And I was operating this little film company that I have up here. And I was in this little house with my family. And at that time, I had written a script called The Conversation, which was a film about professional eavesdropping. And I wanted Marlon Brando to play the part. I did not know Marlon Brando. 
Months before, I had put this idea out to some agents in Los Angeles, and an agent told me that, yes, I have told Marlon Brando about you, and he will call you. And then I didn't hear anything for months and months and months. On one Sunday afternoon, I was sitting there. I got the New York Times in San Francisco. I swear to God, this is true. I was thumbing through it, and I saw a little ad in the bottom corner. This is a long time ago. And it was a black book with a puppeteer's thing that said The Godfather by Mario Puzo. Well, you know, I thought that it was some kind of avant-garde novel out of Italy by kind of a Alain Robegrier kind of European writer, you know, about power and, you know, like Tonio Guerra. That, I like that kind of uh, modern literature. And I thought, oh, what is this strange thing, you know? An hour later, I get a, 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 a ring on the bell, and a guy named Peter Bart, who was a pleasant fellow who was an executive at Paramount Pictures that I just knew in, in casually, dropped over. He was with some friends of his who were producing a movie called um, Little False and Big Halsey, or Big Halsey and Little False. I never get it right. <laughs> and they were shooting in, in the San Francisco area. And so this friend of mine, an acquaintance, brought over the producer and his wife, Al and Francoise Ruddy. And I'd never met them. And it was just a social call, how are you, what have you. At that point, uh, there, there was no connection with Al Ruddy and The Godfather. Well, 15 minutes later, phone rings, and I go and make up the phone, and I say, hello, and I say, hello, this is Marlon Brando. <laughs> well, I w you know, it was like any of you get a phone call from Marlon Brando, and at first I said, what? <laughs> and I'm terrified, and I said, oh, uh, Mr. Brando. I said, yes, and he says, well, I heard you making a script, and, uh, that you're, and, and I'm going to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and I said, well, gee, yes, may I send the script to you? This is for this other movie entirely. And he says, oh, yes, send it to me. And I said, oh, gee, fine. I, I came back and said, you'll never guess who that was. That was Marlon Brando, you know? And they were all appropriately impressed and what have you. <laughs> and now as I look back, on that one Sunday, I, I sincerely took note of The Godfather in the paper. The Al Ruddy and Peter Barth, the people who were to be the producers and put it together, came to my house. And I got a phone call from Marlon Brando. If that is in fate or some kind of strange uh, predestiny, I don't know. And that, that is really on the level. And at the lowest low on that picture, when I really was, you know, at one point I really was on the verge of getting fired, and everything was going as bad, and they hated the rushes and everything, I, I, I thought of that, and I said, this movie is going to be successful just for metaphysical reasons. You know? if, the, if the same sort of thing had happened on Friedkin's film, on The Exorcist, there would be so many interesting supernatural explanations. Because everything that's happened on that film, there's always people who can find that there are reasons for it. They're poltergeists uh, or whatever. Uh, you mentioned your company, your little company that you've been struggling with, mm -hmm. or that you have been up to now struggling with, American Zoetrope. Can you talk a little bit about that, Francis, why you got into uh, it? Very simply, American Zoetrope back in around, I don't know, 19, when I, I did a, a movie. I have to go one step behind that. I, when I finished your Big Boy Now, I, I had this modest success, and I was convinced that I didn't want to make the mistake that I saw other filmmakers, or not a mistake, but a bad, you know, the problem of making a picture that's sort of a modest success, and then following it up with a gigantic, big, you know, Hollywood flop. And I was resolved that I was going to go off and write just these little personal films. Whereupon I got myself an office, and I started to write this film called Conversation. And uh, I got a phone call quite by accident, and ultimately it was the, converse, uh, the, the phone call led to me uh, getting to direct Finian's Rainbow, which 
was something that really appealed to, to me in my memory of my youth. My father, my family were in musical comedy. Uh, Finian's Rainbow was like, you know, one of the great musical comedies, though I had never seen it. And the idea of succumbing and being a big Hollywood movie director, you know, got to me, and I did it. And um, in the process of making Finian's Rainbow, I was, I had come out of another world. I had come out of Roger Corman, where we work with small crews in very, you know, quick kind of uh, informal ways. And, and working in a big studio was a little frustrating in that uh, the film was supposed to be set in like Kentucky and we did it all in the back lot at Warner Brothers and Burbank. And just getting the smog out of the shot was the problem. <laughs> was the problem. At any rate, I was very frustrated on the experience of working on, on that film. And I was very anxious to try to get into a more romantic kind of youthful filmmaking. So the day that picture was finished, I kind of packed up some friends and myself and I took out a script that I had written five years before that, called The Rain People, which was the story of a young woman who left her husband because she didn't want to be the role of a wife. And um, we started to make The Rain People in this so-called informal way, kind of working out of five cars and uh, stopping, going wherever we, you know, kind of turning left if it looked interesting to turn left. We never knew where we were going to go in the picture. And I found that that experience of that film, although it also had problems in other areas, but I found it basically very rewarding. And for a while we stopped in uh, Nebraska, Ogallala, Nebraska. We stayed there for six, seven weeks, and we set up in an old warehouse which we rented for $65. And it really, the idea really came to me very forcefully that you can make movies anywhere. You can make movies anywhere. I had never realized that. I come from the generation you make movies in Hollywood, because that's where movies are made. And I was very happy working in Ogallala. In fact, we were very popular with the residents there. And when we left, the, the mayor of Ogallala said if we would stay, they would build us a little studio. And we would have, you know, made in Ogallala, Nebraska. And I, I was touched by that, but the idea really had gotten to me by then that you could just pick out where you wanted to live and work there. And not to go into my lengthy thing of my thinking, I, I decided I would like to live in San Francisco. And there were many reasons why that was a good idea. And so I essentially transplanted the idea of this little traveling film company uh, and transplanted it in facilities in San Francisco. And I, except I got carried away. And I went to a place in uh, Germany where they have what's called a Photokina, which is a big fair of motion picture equipment and still equipment. And I went there, and I had never seen equipment like that. And I was going through the exhibits, and I would see mixing equipment and cameras that were silent that you could carry on your shoulder. And I just sort of said, well, send me three of these, you know? And I, I literally went there and bought $150,000 worth of equipment that was going to arrive two months later that I didn't have any money to pay. Uh, and sure enough, we went to San Francisco. We, we got a hold of a, a warehouse. And this equipment started to arrive, and it was part of a very youthful, I think, well-intended, romantic idea that we were going to be in San Francisco and have our own equipment, and, and uh, you know, other young filmmakers would come and we would do these films, and it would, you know, be like be part of something exciting. I've, I've always wanted to be part of, you know, like La Boheme, <laughs> you know, where you're working with other writers, and, and uh, I tried to create that. And, uh, that was, if you think of the date, when was it, 1968, it was a very serious, uh, once again, a very serious kind of economic recession. It was a wipeout year for the movie business. They really, studios thought we were going out of business. And then, uh, 
Then some of the youth pictures that were made after Easy Rider started coming out, coming out and were very unsuccessful. And suddenly the studios, the financing end of the studios, did a very rapid about face. And anything associated with younger people or young directors suddenly became very taboo. And I was stuck here with uh, all these bills, which were by then were like $600,000 bills. And, uh, and I had no way of getting out. And I was offered to direct The Godfather. And uh, that, that's why I took that job, really. OK. Um, You've all seen this suit, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> I think I may do that. I'm going to give it another couple of minutes. Um, you, you mentioned some of the films that you made, none of which were really very successful financially up until The Godfather. <coughs> Ironically, the only film that was, I wouldn't call it successful financially, but kind of, you know, half-assed, which was my biggest flop, which was Finian's Rainbow. <coughs> I mean, that didn't lose money. Do you know why? Do you have any, any notion of why? Why Finian's Rainbow didn't lose money? No, why, no, not why it didn't lose money, but what, why it didn't make money. Why Finian's Rainbow didn't make money? Well, lots of reasons. I think, uh, you know, aside from the fact that a lot of people didn't like it, <laughs> there was also... That'll do it. That'll quite, definitely quite do quite it. Quite legitimately. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to rekindle all my feelings about Finian's Rainbow, because that's a whole other chapter that I've ended. But Finian's Rainbow was not a very expensive picture. It was made and released after the incredible success of The Sound of Music. And really, I'm always the guy they bring in when they say, well, we won't spend too much money, and we'll have a, a kind of junior Sound of Music. So, so Finian's Rainbow was kind of made on the lot there's not a foot of film that's not shot right on that back lot in Burbank. And it was blown up to 70 millimeter in the process, cutting Fred Astaire's feet off. <laughs> it was shot in 35. And it was released against Funny Girl and, and pictures that cost millions of dollars that had rehearsed and had choreographers and stuff. And, and it looked silly next to those pictures, I guess. Were you, were you sorry that you undertook the project? No, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sorry I didn't, that I, I mean, I learned stuff, and uh, no, I'm not sorry about any of those. Okay, how, how's about Big Boy? Now that film, um, I don't know, I, I guess it wasn't very financially successful, but it did make some money, and no, those... No, lost money. Lost money, too. Okay. In fact, in that fact, Finian's Rainbow was sort of nicely received and got some nice criticism, people liked it, so much so that people, young guys and, and, and filmmakers, started to submit projects to Seven Arts saying, this is another, you're a big boy now. And they said, look, we don't want another, you're a big boy now. That hasn't paid for itself yet. Do you, do you have any notion as to why that um, lost money? I don't really know. It, it, a film being successful is, the, is a crisscrossing of all kinds of things, the mood of the country at the time, the mood of the audiences, what the film is about. I think, for example, Finian's Rainbow, I think after The Sound of Music, uh, there really, there were all these big musicals made, Dr. Little, a lot of them were unsuccessful. And I think a cycle had passed, you know, as, as it will always. And I just was at the wrong, I think, for example, The Rain People, was very unsuccessful. I mean, no one even saw it. Uh, and in that case, I think, whereas Finian's Rainbow was kind of coming late into an already tired, people didn't want to see that. The Rain People came out a little earlier. It came out, it opened the day, same date as Easy Rider. 
Easy Rider was a kind of stimulating thing with music and dope and all this kind of energy. Rain People was a very laid back kind of slow inquiry into, into questions about women that two years later began to be very articulated. So in that case, I think the, the movie was early. You know, not that it would have been a big success, but it might have been seen. Is there any chance, do you think, of a re-release given the topicality, given the power of your name now no. at the box office? No. no? Question, speaking of the rain, pe rain people, what did, the, what did you base the screenplay of the rain people on, or was it wholly an original concept? It was marvelous, this person says, whichever Is that it was. a question? Yeah. Oh, on the cards. Says it was marvelous. Um, the rain people is curious in that I started it in 1961 when I was a, a writing student at UCLA. It was then called Echoes, and it was the story of three women, a young woman who had just been married, um, a kind of uh, middle-aged woman with several children, an older woman whose family had kind of left. And the title was based on the myth of, of Echo and Narcissus. It's all very prophetic, you know. I, I don't know where those ideas got into my head, but the image of the wife kind of dwindling away just to a voice while her husband looked at himself in the reflection of the water seemed to me like a starting point for a story about marriage, but a marriage in which the wife loved the husband. And that he was, you know, as husbands go, he was, uh, he was nice. And I, I just, you know, empathetically started to wonder what would it be like to be an intelligent uh, woman who had gone through school and had developed herself in these ways and suddenly find yourself in this role of marriage. This is back in 1961. And I wrote this 300 pages because it examined the three women, the older women coming whose marriage you know, was already sort of in its advanced stages, the newly, and it was so much material that I put it away and it, I couldn't finish it, I didn't know how to finish it. And um, after Finian's Rainbow, I was so passionate about wanting to make a small film that I took that script and pulled out the story of one of the characters. And quite arbitrarily, I must admit to you, put that together with a totally romantic idea I had of someday making a movie on the road, just going in cars and shooting whatever seems to be good. So I really combined two, two really, you know, in a way, Rain People didn't have to be made that way. The process of making Rain People was a movie in itself. But in answer to the question, it, it came out of uh, uh, 10 years ago, and to an extent, maybe my own marriage. You know, uh, you know, I like my wife, and I'm sensitive, I think, to things that might be frustrating to her in marriage, being married to a man, especially one who's involved in work and what have you. Maybe my mother, but that's where it came from. Is there, is there any possibility of your taking a, a similar theme, something uh, not exactly about marriage, but about the role of women and doing another film sometime in the near future? Yeah, I think I would. You'd like to? I think in many ways I'm a very, uh, I think I'm a very feminine person. I think all of us are mixtures of ourselves and the other, you know, gender, and we suppress it for whatever reason. Uh, you know, we're frightened. We don't want to be thought uh, one way or the other. And I, I feel that I'm a very feminine person in my feelings, and I'm—I uh, don't know. Maybe it's because I'm, you know, I'm secure in in my heterosexuality that I'm not embarrassed about it. And I would like to express that and explore that, in, especially in films. Mm. Do, do you find it easier directing actresses uh, than actors? No, no, no. In fact, you know, in fact, one of my feelings about The Godfather was the fact there were no parts for women in, in the film. You know, and I feel, I feel very bad about, about the film from one point of view. Uh, Diane Keaton, 
who is a very talented actress, who played Kay, I really feel, you know, she's a shy person, and so, you know, there are a lot of actors, as you, as you know, important actors, and she always sort of shied away, and I always felt, uh, you know, in retrospect, that, that I failed in, in really examining that character and working with her, and since I have the opportunity now to do part two of The Godfather, which is not a sequel, but a really legitimate exploration of that family, I, I would be happiest if, like, if her role really worked, you know? How do you, in, in preparing your actors and working with them, how do you move from one, like a Diane Keaton, who's a very shy person, to someone like Pacino, who is himself a powerful personality, or to a he's Brando? Not, he's not. He's, he's also not. very insecure and shy. That was a bad question. <laughs> um, were there any very powerful people, Francis, on this film who had powerful personalities? Well, the, the actors, look, at actors work different ways. And one of the first things that should happen between an actor and a director, which very rarely does, it's sort of like a husband and a wife, is the, actors have to, the actor and the director has to talk in terms of what do you need and how can I help you and how can we work together. Uh, some actors really go crazy if you try to uh, help them probe areas so that they will be able to give a, a richer performance. They hate that, and other actors absolutely require it. And on The Godfather, they, every actor had a different way of working. Brando and Bobby Duval say, want you to throw a couple of concepts at them. Then they want you to look at them, and they want to feel that some legitimate person is watching so that they're not going to make a fool out of themselves. Brando once told me, he says, very early in the production, he says, you know, if you want something, just ask for it. And what he meant by that was that many directors feel, especially you know, someone associated with an acting movement such as Brando, that you have to kind of explore and, and, and justify everything. But with Brando, you just say, I want it more sad. Literally, or I want it, you know, a little more this, and just be very clear and simple with him. Where another actor really enjoys, like Jimmy Kahn, loves to do exercises with you and have you give him little assignments mm. to help him, uh, to help him in, you know, come. So they're all different, you know, and and that's one of the great pleasures of of, of the process. Did I answer your question? You sure that? did. Yeah, very well, sir. Were you? It's another. It's another audience question. Were you embarrassed about Brando's reaction? Uh, towards the non-acceptance of Academy Awards. Well, em embarrassed that he didn't accept it. Yeah. No, I kind of didn't, I didn't think he was going to accept it. I mean, he as much as told me that he didn't accept it. At the time, I must say, that he didn't accept it. You must realize that I was getting over the trauma of not winning it. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know how I felt at that time. You, you went in expecting to win it. Huh? You went expecting to win it. I was expecting to win it? Yeah. I were. absolutely was expecting it. It's really, it's, uh, in fact, I was so much sure. <laughs> I, was, I was so sure I was going to win it that I started not to care. You know, I was saying, well, you're going to go down? He asked us, oh, yeah, I guess I'm going to go down, I suppose. <laughs> you know, and I really figured, well, I got one already. I'll put the three of them. It'll be nice, you know. And the, when 10, 15 minutes started to go by and I realized that something else was happening, I started really caring. <laughs> and I started really wanting to win it, you know. But uh, that's another story. Do you, uh, what, what are your feelings, basically, about the Academy? And particularly in recent months, there's been an awful lot of antagonism from some filmmakers. Well, you know, uh, my truthful feeling of it is that when the nominations of the Oscars came out, The Godfather was a great favorite. It had many, many nominations, in fact, more than any of the other films. And Gordon Willis, who was the director of photography, was not nominated. Dean Tavalaris, who was the art director, was not nominated. 
Al Pacino was put in as a supporting actor. And the music was disqualified because the composer had written one theme 10 years ago. Same composer, but he had used the theme that he had. Well, I, I have, as the director of the film, if the film is good, it's because of Dean Tavalaris and Gordon Willis. There's no question about it. So I had to begin to question the value of my own nom nominations. And, and I feel very strongly that, uh, that the system that, that makes the nominations it doesn't make sense if, if, uh, if Dean Tavalaris, the art director, loses it and the, and, and the art direction of the Poseidon Adventure gets nominated and, and Tavalaris even isn't considered. You have to you know, lose some respect for it. So I, you know, I felt very... I wanted to win it because when I was a kid, I used to watch it on television. And I thought it would be great to someday go out and get an Oscar. But uh, I did lose respect for the system that, you know. Could you, did you have a speech prepared? Uh, yeah, I was going to make a stink about Gordon Willis and Dean Cavalleras. Truly? Yeah. No, I really, I mean, not a big stink like Marlon made. He made a good stink. <laughs> <laughs> Do you hesitate before using an actor or an actress that you think has talent but very little experience? No, I, uh, absolutely not. I, casting is a very important part of what a director does on a movie. It's probably the most important thing. If you have a good script and a correctly cast picture, you don't even need a director. Uh, and I feel that it comes under that category. In other words, there are roles that an, even a non-actor can play very, very well. And there are roles that a, a beginning actor can do m massively. And I think it's you, you ha it's part intuition and sensing and just knowing what you can do. But basically, you choose from non-actors, inexperienced actors, and experienced actors. And all of those people of that category can be very, very valuable to you. Uh, sometimes actors get very upset when directors use non-actors because they feel basically that is their craft and, and they can play anything. And, and, and they can. But film is such a subtle form that you get in areas that are so infinitesimal that sometimes a non-actor can really be very beautiful. And, and how you choose and who you cast is part of what directing is, I think. Mm. Do you feel, um, we're talking about casting, which is part of pre-production, do you feel uh, that pre-production casting, writing the script, um, carries a larger impact than, let's say, post-production, cutting the film, putting it together? No. No. I look at directing or making a film in three big areas that are essentially different aspects of the same thing. Writing, production, and cutting. When you, when you write, essentially when you cut a movie, it's like the final rewrite, at least the way I work. You know? So I, I couldn't, I, I guess of all of those areas, and I really believe this, that I would think the least important is the actual production period. But I, I, I feel that the, the planning you've done, the script, the casting, in many ways, most movies are already failures or successes at that point, really. That the production is a very grueling and important and many wonderful creative things happen on it. But if I had to rate those areas, I would do it that way. Is this why you can, for example, um, despite your stature and despite the power you have now, most directors, when they reach this point, I think would never go back to just doing screenplays for another director. They just wouldn't do that. They would consider that a step backwards. But my feeling is that you don't hesitate to do that if you like the property, if you get an opportunity to write something. Well, I'm going to disillusion you. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. No, go not ahead. really. Uh, I think what you're referring to is that I did the script for The Great Gatsby, which they're just starting to shoot, I think, tomorrow. That was exactly what I was referring that to. That was. Yeah. Well, 
uh, here was my reasoning. Number one, The Godfather was a three-hour movie that at, a, at one point I looked at and I said, well, people are going to hate this. They're going to think that I've taken this ex you know, exciting, fast-paced novel and have made it into this long, ponderous, dark movie with four guys in a room having conversations. And I was very frightened that the people you know, would not like it and it would be unsuccessful. Now, if The Godfather was unsuccessful, I would be finished. And I knew it. And I figured what I best should do, since I didn't want to ever get into the economic vice that I was in before that, was to try to restart a, a screenwriting career. Because if I were to be totally washed up as a director, rather than go down the rung of one less important movie till I'm doing AIP horror films again, I figured I'd rather be a screenwriter where I can kind of work on a script for three, four months and support myself and do work uh, on either little teeny films or so I've been doing the theatrical work and operatic work and I can focus on that. So on one level it was a very pragmatic uh, thought to make a hunk of money so that if the picture was a flop I could have a little leeway. And number two, I really admired Jack Clayton's films and I thought if I had the opportunity to work with him I would learn something from him. So and I like the book. Okay, so can we infer from that that from now on when you write the screenplay you're going to direct it? No. Oh, I. So that I'm was just sorry. that specific. I'm sorry if I misled you. No. Uh, no, I would always. I think in the future I would enjoy to write a script for a director whom I, I admire. You liked. Yeah. Uh, but I want to do lots of things. I mean, I in, in last year I directed a play, uh, and I directed a, a new opera, a new work at the San Francisco Opera Company, and I would like to continue, uh, you know, exploring these things because I feel that then when you go back to making a film again you have picked up all sorts of things you would never have been exposed to, and that might make the films better. Could you talk a little bit about those experiences and how the theatrical work differs from what you're accustomed to on a film set? Uh, okay. The, I did Private Lives at ACT in San Francisco about a year and a half ago, and then I did a production, a new production of The Visit of the Old Lady, the Dürrenmatt play, which was done into an opera by Gottfried van Einem, a European, a Viennese composer. Uh, the Private Lives was very successful production, and the opera was l certainly less so. Um, the difference for me is that I, extreme, uh, I experience a tremendous frustration at the way we have to work in movies during the rehearsal process. And I, remembering the days when I was in theater, much prefer the kind of long uh, rehearsal period where you can evolve things and come to certain conclusions and then develop them before you finally commit to the finished production. You, ha you have to remember that when you, when you work with an actor, say, for a day or so, and you start shooting on Monday, the little piece of footage that you make on that Monday is it. it you know, I mean, that is the finished piece of film. Whereas you're directing a play, it's in a constant state of evolution, and you are constantly in the position to change. You have some control in, in reshooting and what have you. But generally, I very much dislike the process of directing a film when you get on the stage. And I intend to change my way of working and not work that way anymore, and work much more in a theatrical way, although I'll still be making films. Mm. The, the film which you, which you referred to a couple of times, The Conversation, which you've been working on now for, I guess, a couple of years, off, off mm. and on, you're now in the process, you've shot that, and you're right. now in the process of cutting it. Could you tell us something about the film? And yeah. I'm sorry it's so hot. It's really terrible. Is it warm there, too? Yeah. Where's the swimming pool? <laughs> the, swimming uh, pool. <laughs> the conversation. 
Uh, Conversation is a film about a professional eavesdropper. I wrote it about five years ago, and my premise was to do a, a piece, a sort of psychological horror film, as it were, about a man who was a professional eavesdropper and have the film be about him and about what his life was like rather than the more exotic lives of whomever he might be recording. In other words, uh, start a film with some people having a conversation and, in, and, and show that they're being recorded, but then instead of going with them, go with the man who recorded it and examine, examine questions. I thought I was writing a film about privacy. But when I actually worked on it, I realized I was making a film about responsibility. Because the film deals with three or four days of this man's life as he puts together the tapes that he made from this young couple's conversation. And in the course of putting them together and preparing them, it's sort of very exotic the way he did it. Uh, He hears the tapes and sees and remembers the tapes over and over and over again. And what starts to have been a, a totally ordinary mundane conversation of two people walking around in circles in a park begins to take on different meanings for him. The film constructs itself sort of like a composition of music in that it uses repetition, repeating the exact same footage at several times to give you more information about itself. In other words, you you see something which doesn't mean very much to you, and then by seeing it a second time, you begin to focus yourself on another level. And then you see it a third time, and suddenly it means something else. The film juxtaposes, this may be boring, but the film juxtaposes the repetition of the same conversation over and over again in different ways until uh, in relationship to the main character, questioning the moral aspects of what he does. But I don't know if a lot of you, well, now you know, (laughs) but that there is a whole underground of professional eavesdroppers and security people (laughs) that has been going on for years and I kind of got wind of it, and I did research on it all these years ago. I had no idea that it would become so relevant to our personal lives. And in fact, when I wrote the script, there used to be security and surveillance conventions in which all the security and surveillance people used to go to the conventions at the, the Hilton or what have you with their wives, and there would be booths as people were saying, and here's the D3 harmonica tap, and you install it, and this is a better product than this guy's. And, and surveillance was a big business, as it still is. Uh, and security, and that whole world I became fascinated with and wanted to do a movie about. In the, it, no one wanted to finance it. And in the years that went by, in 1968, they changed a lot of legislation so that what I just talked about is no longer legal. They don't sell those things over the counter. Instead, they change the names of what the devices are. So a machine, which formerly you installed in any telephone, and, it would, and on dialing a special number would turn into a microphone so you could hear what was going on in that room where the telephone was, now they call a kind of burglary device where you buy it and you put it on your own telephone and you can call in if you suspect your house is being burglarized. But by changing the names of the same equipment, they can, they can still sell it. But anyway, any rate, this is what the film is about. I have brought some of it, and boy, it's going to be deadly in this hot room because it's very you know, rough. I'm just cutting it now. We can maybe show it later. At, are there any questions about it? Or Maybe the best thing is to wait till the film comes out instead of trying to ravel it frame by frame. But I think it's a good idea. Let's try tonight, although we haven't done it before, to take some questions from the audience, right? This is the last night. So we can... What we were doing. Yes, right. Well, let's, let's pursue it. Except let's not, if we can, can we not talk it's, about it? It is hard for me to explain the story backwards, but, but uh, I don't mind the questions. This lady with the pink dress. 
Uh, I don't think that's true. I think there are other, I think there are other guys who write and direct and, and stuff. And, uh, Yeah. Well, I feel very, it's very important uh, to my own personal life that I get to move into an area of film where I have some fun and where I do some of the things that I said I wanted to do. To me, to make one great big deal movie which is sort of successful or not successful every year is a total bore and I won't make movies if that's what I'm going to do. I would like every film to be a whole new ball game and I, and I want to do uh, other things in terms of theater and what have you. So that I look upon the status that you uh, uh, describe as m really putting me on the block. Believe me, it is much easier as a Hollywood film director to sit around your house and have people submit scripts to you and say, well, I'll do this one. You know, because you're a big deal director, you get the best script. So any, you, know, you look good, obviously, but you kind of, these writers come and then you pick the one you like the best and then you work with them a few weeks and, and you know, Tell them we'll fix this and fix that. That is not the image I have cast on myself. I am in a much more dangerous area where every film, since I write it from scratch, such as this, which is just based on an idea, an idea of, of privacy at that time. Uh, it's scary because I have to do that now. I can't say, well, I was broke, so I had to do The Godfather. You know? So I'm in that funny position. Okay. Charlie Bluthorn is a businessman, but he's a sort of crazy creative one. And he, he never laid down the law. I, mean, my, I didn't mean to imply that Charlie Bluthorn was at every meeting and stuff. He, he loves Paramount Pictures. He really does. And at the time when that, he told me once that when Paramount Pictures was you know, showing a great big loss, uh, and there was a 20-man board of directors of Gulf and Western. There were 19 votes to get rid of the company and one vote to keep it. That was Charlie Bluthorn. And, and he really loves movies. And a lot of his ideas, maybe I don't think, are so good, but he never jammed them down my throat. And I guess the truth of the pudding was that they didn't fire me. You know? I, I, I sort of really like him because he's, you know, he's, very, uh, he's very, in his own way, very creative from the experience I've had with him. He's the one who made the director's company possible. And he's run his company with that kind of energy, and uh, there's analogies between that and being an artist. But he never told me, don't do that. After he got to know me when, you know, when the crisis of the movie was over, it was, in fact, it was he, on, it was like four weeks into the picture, when, uh, when he saw some film and liked it a lot, he was the one who took me out alone to dinner and told me that no one was going to fire me and that I should do the picture the way I want. So I am personally, I have a kind of gratitude to him for that. I would think that some of the kind of serious so-called directors that I know uh, have flirted with that idea, but I think one of the things that puts them off of it, and I'll be very honest with you, is uh, two-pronged. One is that the structure that has grown up around, pardon me? It's all, the structure, 
The structure that has grown up around television, the system that these shows are put in, the very programming of it, has grown up and kind of encompassed it so that it's sort of a little bit inflexible. And that isn't enough in itself, because you say, why doesn't someone really go and knock it? But the economics and the, the economics associated with television production are so much less, not only for what the money the director gets, but for him to be able to do the things he wants to do, most directors will naturally gravitate to the form that gives them the most freedom, the most time, the ability to work with the actors that they want to work. But, you know, I, I would think, I mean, I myself would like to uh, become involved in it, and sometime in the future I will. I think that's the reason why it happens. I would agree. You have Final Cut is a funny phenomenon. For those of you who it's what it, it for those of you who haven't heard it, it means that the director has the absolute legal right to determine what the final film is like, as opposed to the producers who have paid for it. Uh, some people view that like the architect having the right to tell you exactly what this house that you own is like, and then other people argue the point of view of the artist. I always worked for for companies that I never fought for Final Cut very hard. And I'll tell you why. I always worked for companies that I felt that if they gave me the chance to at least show them my Final Cut, that I could win them over. I could invite audiences, and we would arrive at that intelligently. Uh, my experience with The Godfather did not bear that out, so then I asked for it on future pictures. And now I, you know, I guard that jealous, jealously. But I never was a fanatic on Final Cut before The Godfather. How, how, much, how much authority did Paramount exercise in the final cut of The Godfather? It was a very tempestuous experience, the cutting of The Godfather, and uh, uh, especially over the music. The Paramount people did not like the music at that point. They took it all out of the picture, and I put it back in. I was directing a play up in San Francisco, Private Lives, and so I was living there and coming down to work on the cut and flying up and to work on my little play, which was going to open in two weeks. And I would go down to Paramount, we would do the mix with the music, and I would go back up to San Francisco. When I had gone back to Paramount, the mix and the music was totally different. And then when I would change it back, I'd go up to San Francisco, and the actors would change the staging of the play. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going crazy, you know? Uh, but the, the final form of The Godfather and the final, certainly the final music in The Godfather was uh, arrived at through various political, uh, it's compromise. Are there scenes that you shot for the film which are not in it. That I wanted in? Yeah, that no. you wanted in. Ironically, and I, again, I try to be fair about this. Ironically, I was concerned about the film's length. And at one point, I got into a disagreement with Bob Evans that I wanted to make the movie 10 minutes shorter. And he was the one that insisted it, it not be 10 minutes shorter. And uh, I think he, I guess he was right, you know. That, that runs counter to what film uh, studios traditionally, the argument that they traditionally hold. Because from the point of view of the exhibitor, the longer it is, the worse it is, because the fewer turnovers. Well, you know, that's one example where, where you know, it worked the other way. Maybe it was better that that scene was left in, those two scenes. No. No, that was one of my big arguments in frustration, because I really, you know, I, I feel that the audience is part of the movie. And The Godfather, you see, was such big deal by that time that they were terrified to preview it, lest the word get out that it not be good. There was so much writing on it. So we were working without an audience, which used to drive me berserk, because we'd get into an argument. And I, and I would say, I think that's good. And they would say, it's not. And I said, well, where's the audience to tell us? You know? And that was a big problem of it. I like to, I have a rule 
when, I, when you cut a film, it's sort of like many drafts of a script. Cutting is very much like writing. And I have a rule that whenever we show a cut, I always want one or two people in the room who know nothing about the movie just to sit there and just, it's not so much their reaction to the film, but it's the chemistry of the room is different when someone is sitting there who doesn't know what's going to happen, you know? And, and, and it changes your, you, 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 you change, even though you know every line and everything, it changes and, and it becomes a little new for you too and you can judge it better, I think. One, one, one of the stories that came out of this film that generated an awful lot of publicity, interestingly enough, because Paramount forbid any newsmen or photographers on, on the set when it was shooting in New York. You, they had only like with of, uh, Brando. Only, yeah, oh, with Brando, okay, yeah. But they, they would forbid anyone except, I think, Life, they let Life magazine on, and that was it. One of the stories that came out of it was a marvelous anecdote about the use of the word uh, mafia in the film. Uh, and the negotiations that, that went on. It's a, not a long story. Well, you know, that was that big deal thing about we hadn't have the word mafia in the picture, right? Yeah. What that was is early on in the pre-production, we started to sense that, you know, obviously uh, certain Italian-American groups, civic groups, were, were upset about a picture that dealt with the mafia in this, in this way. They, they saw the book become so successful, and uh, we found ourselves very unwelcome in areas of New York. And in fact, one where we were originally going to shoot where the Don lives, I think we were going to shoot it in my old neighborhood around Glencove or somewhere. And we started building the sets, and the, the, the Italian-Americans of the community put a lot of pressure on the, the people who give permits to do this kind of work, and they canceled them all. So we reached a point where we were having a difficult time. I wasn't too involved in that. I was, you know, doing my work. And at one point, Al Ruddy, made a, uh, an agreement with an organization known as the Italian-American Civil Liberties Union, uh, very respectable at that time, and, uh, and maybe so. And the, the deal that, that these people would kind of let it filter down through their rank and file that to Italian-Americans not to be negative towards the picture, if we agreed not to put the word mafia or cosa nostra in the picture, it was sort of, remember they had been, they had picketed the FBI for the use of those words? Well, when Ruddy told me we can't use the word mafia cosa nostra, I said, oh, that's fine. It's not in the script. <laughs> so he went back and made the deal. <laughs> but if you think about it, second, this movie was from the point of view of this family. And when they're sitting around in their kitchen, they're not referring to themselves as the mafia. They're just going, you know, that's, also, that's us. <laughs> so it was a silly, it was a silly controversy. Uh, you're saying that in regard to the footage I just showed you. My feeling on that is it's very dangerous business, and I don't intend, I, uh, my personal career, uh, I'm in partnership with Billy Friedkin and Peter Bogdanovich, as you know, and the films that we're going to make for the director's company are hopefully going to be films that entertain while they light, or uh, if necessary, just entertain, as Billy says, I want to gas an audience. Uh, 
I have other aspirations as well, but I feel a lot of uh, affection and, uh, and fairness to my partners. And I'm going to make uh, these three pictures for the director's company, and I'm going to try to the best of my ability to make films that will entertain an audience. But on the other hand, I, I, being frank, I made a lot of money on The Godfather, and I'm going to make a lot more on The Godfather Part Two. And my, my philosophy is that I'm going to take that money, and that money is going to finance other films and theatrical activity that I do. And that doesn't have to be successful. That just can, you know, uh, money is a strange thing in this country. Money earns money. And I will have enough money each year to finance a film and my little company in San Francisco. And it has no obligation to make money. In all of history? I think I thought uh, Seven Samurai of Kurosawa was very good. It's my favorite movie. Why did I think it was? Because it, it, it opened up for me on an emotional level. It was very moving to me. And that I, I remember the film in, in the sense of it being a very complete experience that actually got me feeling things. And that that was a, uh, feeling things towards an end. And I found that very. Uh, very satisfying. I like to be moved by a film. Francis, how, do you, how would you answer critics who claim that The Godfather is a kind of glorification of violence and a violent way of life? Well, uh, I've heard that, obviously. And my feeling about that was, on a first level, and I don't mean this as a cop-out, my job at the time I did that was to dramatize this book. That's really the way I looked at it at that time. I felt that it would be nice if I could give the story a kind of authenticity about the way Italian-Americans live, I mean the family life. Because as an Italian-American, I always would see movies where they talk like it is, and, and I knew it wasn't true. You know? And I wanted to give a sense of it in my, in my memory. Uh, the story, which was a big, long, complex story, had points in it which were very violent. And I was fully aware that that was one of the reasons why the book was successful. My decision was. And I hope I did it, though people have said I didn't, was to have the violence pretty much be in those places where it was part of the story and where it made the point that I felt it had to make. Now, you have to remember that you saw these people in their, their family life. And you see the godfather. In the story, he never does anything bad. I mean, he's just a nice guy. He sits around. He works out the family problems. So I was, and, and nothing in the story made it possible to have you actually see him kill somebody. You heard stories about in the past where he had. So I tried, I tried to design some of the violence that I'm thinking of to kind of be in uh, juxtaposition with this image of this kind. Like there's one cut where, I don't know, it goes from some horror. I mean, the horse's head violence. The next cut goes right to. Don Corleone sitting there saying, uh, you know, whatever he was saying. So I was trying to show the good and evil of, of, of this family. Uh, one of the concepts of the film when I started it was to try to juxtapose extremes. Even in terms of the photography, like the wedding, we deliberately went and shot the wedding kind of overexposed so that we could cut it against this dark room. Uh, business and family, good and evil, uh, uh, humanity and, uh, and, uh, and inhumanity. And, and the violence was that necessary uh, juxtaposition. Uh, I feel that the film does not glamorize the people because the film leads you to Michael Corleone. He is the heir. 
And that last scene of that movie was not designed to leave you saying, what a bunch of great guys. That, movie is a, that scene is a very cold scene. Michael is a very cold man. He kills his sister's husband, and his wife asks him about it, and he lies to her. And that's the last image of the movie, which I did not think was a positive, warm, fabulous image. I felt it was a very cold, and the door is closed on her. Uh, so I didn't feel that I was making a pro-mafia uh, picture in my field. But I didn't think the movie was about the mafia anyway. So. Thank you for listening to this 92i program. For more information, visit 92i.org. This program is copyright 1973 by the 92nd Street Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association.